Hello and welcome to the 10th and final episode of season 2 of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm media coordinator and organ grinder, Giles Goff. And I'm claims negotiator and dancing monkey, Phil Coleman. <laughs> and during this time of lockdown, we'll be trying to stave off the desire to permanently volunteer at all vaccination centres by sticking on our film geek hats to analyse 2017's The Shack, starring Sam Worthington and based on the New York Times bestseller of the same name. We'll be looking at whether God is a woman, why our relationships with our dads get in the way of our relationship with God, does Jesus have a sense of humour, and why you shouldn't just go around accusing people of heresy willy-nilly. <laughs> now, before we started on this one, I knew we would need to take a bit more time than usual to prepare for this one. I knew that the film did not necessarily live up to the high standards set by the book. So I sent Phil a copy of the book, expecting him to skim through a few chapters. And to my surprise, he actually read the whole thing. So, Phil, what did you think of The Shack? It's very, very uplifting. Um, mm-hmm. That was the first thing that I got from it. Is I, I, Like, it's very bleak. And it has the subject matter it tackles, sort of like, you know, loss of a child and... Mm-hmm. and how a father deals with the grief of that and the supposed responsibility on his part, yeah. which he feels. It's, it's quite poignant, and having just become a father for real this time, properly myself, I really sympathised with the man because there is just no greater pain, I imagine. What I enjoyed about the book is the fact that it sort of gives you hope that even if you make a few mistakes... Like, if you were a Christian or if you did believe in God, I can imagine mm-hmm. reading this kind of book would be quite, maybe cathartic is probably the term. Uplifting and cathartic is a really good word to, to describe it. I remember mm-hmm. reading this approximately 11 years ago. I remember that feeling of almost wishing it was real, wishing that yeah. it wasn't, that the story wasn't just fiction, because I felt like it said so much about what a relationship with God was like. It almost wasn't enough that it was fiction, if that makes sense. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think the thing that I got from it is just that it, it sort of dispelled a lot of the myths, or at least, even though it's a piece of fiction, and as we'll probably discuss later, a lot of people did not agree with the universalist sort of... Uh, mm-hmm viewpoint of the book um, well, i'll tell you what I, I learned the term universalism like last thursday so it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like you're pretty au fait with it do you want to tell people what yeah. universalism is from what i understand i mean i don't understand it that well but what i do understand of it is that everybody is forgiven and accepted by god no matter what you do and that you will be redeemed as long as you maintain a relationship with god this is layman's terms for me like, just we're well, 22 episodes in and now you're explaining religious <laughs> concepts to me anyway uh without further ado let's hear phil's facts full disclosure time there was not many facts <laughs> for this film that, um, <laughs> that were completely obvious yeah it's quite devoid this time around so phil's fact phil's fact <laughs> Uh, So yeah, The Shack is a 2017 American Christian drama film that's directed by Stuart Hazeldean and it's based on the 2007 novel of the same name by William P. Young. So in 2005, William P. Young was working three jobs and living in a 900 square foot apartment with his wife and four of his six children after losing his home to bankruptcy. He started writing a novel during his daily 14 minute train commute 
hoping to express his feelings about God to his children, since he couldn't afford to buy holiday gifts. He expected his family, and maybe a few of his friends, to read it, and the book sold over 20 million copies. So I bet he was dead chuffed about that. Yeah, right. His wife, Kim, asked him, the way you think is really quite interesting, and the way you think about God is really interesting. It would be nice if you could just write it down so that our children have something of the way your mind works on this stuff. Mm. So he goes, and he ends up writing the shack, and she says... Yeah, I was expecting like five or six pages. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's pretty impressive. I reckon she was more surprised than uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's editor when he said, it's great, we need a follow-up to The Hobbit. <laughs> Here's Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, he's just there like, it's all good. <laughs> Forrest Whitaker was originally attached to direct, but he dropped out. That's a shame. I would have loved to have seen Forrest Whitaker's uh, version of this. So, Aviv Alush, who played Jesus, is the first Israeli actor to play Jesus in an English-language film. That Apparently is Apparently so, yeah. I know, I thought wow. that. I, I would have thought it would have been a bit more commonplace, because Jesus was Jewish, right? <laughs> so, yes. Israel, also, Judaism. <laughs> also, you've got to remember that for the last sort of 2,000 years, Jesus has been portrayed in pretty much every bit of Christian art as blonde hair, blue eyes, Caucasian, sort of Jesus... So yeah. it's taken people a while to go, yeah, you know that Jesus was born in Israel and Israel's in the Middle East, right? You do know how geography works, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> James B. DeYoung, a professor of New Testament language and literature at Western Seminary in Oregon, and the author of a scathing critique called Burning Down the Shack, How the Christian Bestseller is Deceiving Millions, uh, said Young's me uh, message strays dangerously far from biblical teachings and promotes universalism, or the idea that in the end, all people will go to heaven. So, mm. <laughs> have you ever heard this sort of term the purists and the tourists i've not heard of it but i think i can get a gist of what it means yeah so the general sort of idea is that when you're coming to an adaptation of something that uh, already exists in some form whether it's a historical epic or whether it's a an adaptation of a book or, or something like that you're going to have mm. the purists who are there sort of looking at it going well that is not exactly the way it is portrayed in the book as i like it and then you've got other people who just literally saw that this film was being advertised and they thought they'd take a punt on it. So what happens is that a lot of the time you can have a story that is not necessarily completely 100% accurate or completely 100% faithful to the source material, but it is engaging enough to hook people's interest in and have mm. them want to find out more about it. It has been brought to my attention that not everybody goes, that's really interesting, I would like to research it further. Some people just go, that is a good film, and then they carry on with their lives. And frankly, I'll never understand those people. Me if, either. But if this film makes people want to learn more about God, then that is a good thing. I think it is a good thing. What's going to be interesting is when they make the film adaptation of our lives and get all the facts <laughs> wrong there. Like, hang on, wait a second. In this version, Phil is taller than Giles. Why is he being played by a, a digitally de-aged Danny DeVito? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nobody expected Kira Knightley to play Giles, but you know, she's got range, whatever. <laughs> I've got one more. Young initially printed just 15 copies of his book. Two of his close friends encouraged him to have it published and assisted with some editing and rewriting in order to prepare the manuscript for publication. And after rejection by 26 publishers, Young and his friends published the book under the name of their newly created publishing company, Windblown Media, in 2007. The company only spent 200 Canadian dollars on advertising. 
and word of mouth referrals eventually drove the book to number one of the New York Times paperback fiction bestseller list in June 2008. It's quite nice to see that to see that sort of like bankruptcy to bestseller yeah. sort of as, story, you know. As rags to riches stories go, self-publishing a novel, which let's be honest, there are some bits in it that a uh, a good editor would have definitely taken a red pen to. All in all, mate, I did actually really like it, and it's it's obviously the probably the most on the nose Christian film we've uh, we've done so yeah. far. I was going to say. Uh, this is a little bit of a diversion from our established format because whilst we normally take things from mainstream cinema and then find the faith parallels in there, this time we've gone and we've picked a incredibly explicitly Christian film mm. because in quite simple terms, how could you not? How could I not talk yeah. about this one? And it's it's God in film to... and it literally has God yeah. in the film. <laughs> you know, so. Normally we try to try to avoid this kind of thing because frankly, I want to talk about things that nobody else is talking about. Everybody else has had something to say about the shack, but I felt it had to be included in this and it felt like so, such an important story that it needed to be the the season two finale. You know something like it, it, the religious aspect of it isn't my thing. However, yeah, the the the, the sort of the idea of rec- the the reconciliation with his father and the idea that he gets to sort of forgive the killer of his daughter. It, it sort of aligns very much with how I would like to think I am in life. Mm-hmm. Like if I allow grief and blame to sort of like you know rule my life, which I have done in the past, then. I'm just going to burn up inside and it's yeah. no way to live. Absolutely. So I, I, I recognise the, the human qualities of it. I thought it was a joy to read and to watch. Thank you for those facts, Phil. They were awesome. No now, our guest this week is someone who has had a, a brief stint on the podcast before, but we thought we'd bring him back for like a proper guest, guest role. I'll let him introduce himself. Uh, hi, Giles. I'm Nick Matthews, working for Life Church uh, in Manchester. Nick, it is wonderful to have you back on the podcast again. Good to be here. The reason Nick is on the podcast today is he was the one that actually introduced me to the book The Shack about 10 years ago. What can you tell us about the book The Shack? Someone actually said uh, The Shack will change the way you think about God forever. That's a bold claim, isn't it? But uh, I think the book does, actually. I think it's a a powerful book. The title, The Shack, is actually a, a metaphor for the place where we hide our pain. That's brilliant. It's basically a story on the face of it of uh, a family man who tragically uh, loses his five-year-old daughter uh, to a sort of child killer that's on the loose. Mm-hmm. And four years later, after this terrible event, uh, he gets a note, which is supposed to be from God, inviting mm-hmm. him to go to the shack where the body of his daughter was, well, evidence of a death was found. And he goes to this shack and has an encounter with God or the, or the Trinity, if you like, and, and find some healing. It's a story about grace, kindness, and forgiveness. I find myself wondering what is the, in the mind of somebody who could write a story about that. So what can you tell us about the author, William Paul Young? The chap himself, Paul Young, was son of missionary parents who took him out um, as a baby, I think, out to New Guinea. And he was raised with a, uh, a tribe. He was the only white boy in this, this tribe for the first few years of his life and then was sent off to boarding school. All sorts of issues and problems about the main feature that he was abused as a boy systematically yeah. by, by tribe members and by older boys at the boarding school. Interestingly enough, this all started about the age of five, which is the age the daughter Missy is in the book where she gets killed. Gosh. Someone actually wrote to Paul Young and said, uh, Missy, that's the girl who's, who gets killed in the story, she represents something murdered in you as a child 
And Mackenzie, the father, represents you as, as an adult trying to deal with that. And yeah. when he was told that, he said, you've hit the nail on the head. That's the, the fascinating thing about sort of creating things. Often people can see something in your own work that you can't see yourself. Yeah, he's a deep thinker, a theological thinker, but more than that, someone who is aware that we can have a shack that's if I like our heart that has... We paint a facade over it, but underneath it hurts and it's painful. And he experienced that in his own life in various ways, he became a broken man and needed God to come and heal him. He actually felt that his, his background, his religious background, didn't really help particularly, but in some ways made him want to pretend even more that everything was okay when it wasn't okay. And uh, he needed a breakthrough to actually discover who God was for himself rather than just yeah. go some some religious ceremonies and so on. That's fantastic. So what was the reaction to the shack like in the evangelical Christian community? Ooh. I mean, I, I sound terrible. I feel like such a fake saying the evangelical Christian community. What I mean is, how did it go down in church? But I, I'm well aware that from our, our sort of atheist uh, listeners, that church has a, has a very broad meaning. Yeah, I think it's an excellent book for atheists, by the way. An excellent book. The reaction was, I would say, mixed and strong. Yeah. Uh, I was reading how at one particular event, there were folk with placards outside picketing uh, an event where the book was being promoted. Oh, and uh, William Paul Young actually spoke to some of the protesters. It turned out they hadn't actually read the book. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people were protesting on the basis of what they'd heard rather than reading it for themselves. Um, and the, the answer is always to read something for yourself, isn't it? Absolutely. But the, the various criticisms, the main criticism revolved around the portrayal of the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In particular, the fact that God was represented initially um, as a black woman. Mm -hmm. And many traditional uh, evangelicals couldn't cope with this and didn't really ask the question, why did God appear as a black woman? And what did it reveal about the heart of God and so on? So people didn't see beyond the simple illustration. So there's controversy about portrayal of the, of the Trinity, particularly God as a black woman. Mm -hmm. um, there's no mention of uh, God's justice or wrath. Um, okay. That's caused some controversy. But I think the main criticisms I heard revolved around the portrayal of God as, as, a, as a woman. People mm. couldn't cope with that. So some strong reactions, very positive reactions as well, I have to say, with, with some folk. Um, but a lot of people did get hot under the collar about it. It's one of those books where I can remember where I was when I was reading it. It was had that much of an impact on me. Yeah. The tricky thing is, on the basis of the story itself, um, having your five-year-old child murdered mm -hmm. and having to come to terms with that and be able to get to a point where you can forgive and move on that is yeah. incredibly powerful um Absolutely. and that is to actually deal with that was very brave i think you can look at it as a metaphor but just the story itself is very very powerful so i remember when he's trying to talk to god about finding the, the man he said well that man's my son too yes um Yes, the implication was in the story that uh, Mac, or the, the main character, ends up judging God. Yeah, definitely. How often do people do that? All too often. Nick, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And, My pleasure uh, as always. It's always a joy to have you on. Thank you. Okay, Phil, that was Nick Matthews. What do you think? He's like a font of knowledge, that man. And, you know, he's, he's, he's quite wise, especially in his choice of books, because yeah. obviously The Shack is, you know, as, as I now know, is a very good book. Um I also quite liked how concise everything was. He managed to boil everything down into nice bite-sized chunks. Yeah, Nick Matthews is wonderful. Nick Matthews is mm. who I want to be if I grow up. 
you know he's, <laughs> we don't uh, know if that's going to happen though he, so. he's, <laughs> he's a he's a passionate follower of jesus and a massive geek you know so we both we're both in the same venn diagram on that one so we're going to introduce a a new topic for this this one a new section Ooh. that hopefully we're never going to bring in again and it's called problems with the film da 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 off the top of your head there i like it i yeah, like it thank you, know? you thank you so uh, for this film we are going to break one of our cardinal rules and discuss the quality of the film we always say we're not here to critique the film we're just here to find faith parallels mm. i felt it was important for this film to discuss some of those quality issues my main issue is predominantly with the first 30 minutes of the film you don't need them there is no yeah. point All in right. whatsoever yeah. And yeah. that's the end of that section, guys. End of podcast. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah. Get rid of that bit. You know that thing where people keep talking about how film is a visual medium? Mm. And I always feel the need to correct people and go, actually, film is an audio-visual medium because you kind of need both for it to work really mm. well. Yeah. Clearly, yeah. the people who adapted this book have never heard of either of those phrases. Or they've never seen the theatrical cut of Blade Runner because... <laughs> oh famously the, the voiceover with tim mcgraw talking in this like slightly <laughs> midwestern southern accent when he talks about his friend mac and how he's trying to sound vaguely inspirational use tim mcgraw's shaving products yeah. you know like it's, it's sort of like that you know the character that he plays is willie which is basically short for william paul young so yeah. he's effectively yep. playing the, the character in the in the foreword to the check there's a bit where the author talks about mac as if he's a real person he, uh, i had to do some googling to work out like, that it wasn't a yeah, real person oh, so he's so he's not real right okay that makes a lot of sense yeah <laughs> so this is within an established uh literary tradition of mm-hmm. i heard this story and this is what was told to me you know the entirety of frankenstein seems to go along that basis if you took that narration out completely you could still get everything that's 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 happening there you don't need to be told it you don't need to be talked down to it you do sort of have to sort of spoon feed some bits of information Mm. but usually visually because some things just aren't obvious unless you literally know the character and wrote them (laughs) there's other things in there the representation in it is really bad up until he actually gets to the shack everybody there is i'm gonna call it aggressively white and uh and sort of toned and they all all of them all of the supporting characters all look like they've come out of central casting i was a little thrown initially by the the casting of sam worthington because if the the way mac is described in the book he's sort of middle-aged he's balding He's uh, he, he's overweight, and Sam Worthington is weaponized handsome. A man could walk into any shop mm-hmm. and everybody would keel over pregnant. You know what I mean? Like it's just ridiculous. <laughs> 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 Including the men. <laughs> Sam Worthington's hair is almost as good as mine. That's how good it is, you know. <laughs> and it, yeah, but that said, <laughs> um, all my problems with the film dissipated when he actually got to the shack when he actually Mm. gets there when the story actually kicks in it was brilliant the problem is if you have all the bad stuff right at the start of the film then people are obviously going to be switching off straight away those things that bug me like did you notice what they wore for church 
smart casual? They were wearing suits and sort of ties and everything. So why are they dressing up for church? As if God is fussed about whether you're wearing a suit and tie. It bugs me out because it feels like this. It's trying to perpetuate this idea of Christianity equals respectability. And mm. that's not what God wants. God wants like a come as you are kind of thing. Like, I don't care what you look like on the outside. Just show up. That's all I care about. I'm, I'm, if if I ever become a Christian, I'm going to show up to church one mm-hmm. day in my ducky swim shorts. Like <laughs> general sort of dress code for church is: Am I wearing pants? If the answer is yes, then you're probably okay. Yeah, that's the that's yeah. the general gist. Like I say, when I look at a film like this, I find myself thinking: Well, why why is it like this? Is there any way it could have been made better, or is there a reason why it is the way it is? And I, all I can get is like. You could have just cut a lot of stuff out and we would have figured it out as we went along. An audience will enjoy it more if they need, if they can uh, find things out as they go along rather than if they have it spoon-fed to them right at the start. One of the, the purest pleasures from watching film is when something clicks in your head. especially it, And, and that usually takes, that takes paying attention to the whole film. But then you go, ah, mm-hmm. that was it. Now I understand why this happened. Yeah. And, and there's something really nice about that. <laughs> All that said, I did kind of love this film. I, uh, I, it was better than I remembered. We watched it this afternoon, and me and Claire both had tears streaming down our face I, at, I, uh, I, at different points in it. I personally had a little cry when he uh, he reconciled with his father. I was just like, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and when he got to meet Missy again in the um, book, I cried at that point. Oh, I was just like, <laughs> and I tell you something. Octavia Spencer has got game, hasn't she? Oh you man, know? Octavia Spencer. There's that is moment. Just... She can just play it. She can do. She can Eddie Murphy any of my films. You know what I mean? Just play every character. Is, I'd be fine with it. <laughs> there's that moment where she's talking about Jesus being on the cross, and how he may have said he may have said that I abandoned him, but I never left him. And she shows him the scars on her wrists as well, yeah. and you can see the the uh, her eyes welling up, and I'm all of a sudden getting I'm getting chills just thinking about it. You know, you just there like it once. <laughs> She loves her son so much. <laughs> yeah. Once it actually gets to the shack, once the story gets to do what it actually wants to do, it is phenomenal. You know, it is something else. Anyway, all that said, yeah. it is time for <laughs> Finding the Faith in the Film. <laughs> oh, it's a lot Fantastic. of fun. Fantastic. First of all, can you remember what Octavia Spencer's papa first refers to herself as Illusia 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 sure. yeah yeah that's it yeah. yeah everyone the translation or some translation of that are, are loving mercy mm. uh, which I thought was a really nice thing or, or the fact that um, the, the Holy Spirit is referred to Sarayu it meant something like a gentle wind or something like that I think so got a quick question for you then mm. is it okay to think of God as a woman Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Because the, the way, the, the way <laughs> no, the way I the way I see it is just that she comes in whatever form is easiest for the person she's trying to sort of converse with. It makes it like mm-hmm. the, whatever makes sense to them. Basically, she comes in whatever form makes sense. For, like first of all, as we've discussed before, you can't actually see God, or your head will probably explode, or something like that. So it's already a narrative contrivance, but I'm here for it. Mm. So interestingly, I spent a bit of time looking at this. Obviously, in the Bible, there are lots of times where God is referred to using uh, male terminology. Obviously, Mark 14, I think 36, uh, Jesus refers to him as Abba, which is 
father. Yeah. In some Old Testament things, it's Melech, which is usually translated as king or lord or captain, ruler, prince, chief. I like All this the idea heavily of captain sort of god. Captain just god. Just a big ship. You know, just like, yeah, convert those people. <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. You know? yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. However, what's interesting is there are times where in the Bible, God is referred to using female terminology. In Matthew 23, 37, he's referred to as, or he's illustrated as being a, a mother hen. In Isaiah 49, verse 15, right. there's a line where it says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. And then Jesus also gives a parable in Luke 15, 8 to 10. Have you ever heard this parable of the woman looking for a lost coin? No. So it's basically similar to uh, the shepherd looking, losing the one sheep and uh, and leaving the 99 to go find it. She sort of she loses oh, yeah. a coin. No, I have heard of that. I have heard of that. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know it was. I didn't know it the type. Sweeps that. Yeah. So sweeps the sweeps the house, looks for it, and then when she finds it, she sort of brings all her friends over to celebrate. Look, look, I found this thing. We've got God being presented in male imagery and also female imagery as well. So. Why on earth does it seem so important to refer to God by a gender? Mm, that is a good one because, First, like, yeah. it, it, what it doesn't really make sense to gender God because exactly. God isn't human. Absolutely, it, it just just is. <laughs> well, <laughs> just... both both genders came from God, so that's yeah. uh, that's an important thing to remember. So, first of all, because pronouns are useful. <laughs> and also because patriarchy. Yeah, unfortunately, patriarchy does have a steely grasp on all of our mm, society, even absolutely. even when it comes down to re religion as well, which, well, we're still working through it, everyone. <laughs> absolutely. Know? So I looked into this a bit more. I looked, found Elaine Storkey, who is a philosopher, social, sociologist, and mm. theologian. So she was the co-author of a book called Conversations of Christian Feminism, she says that by limiting ourselves to male-only language, we restrict our capacity to see God in all his fullness. Do you remember when we talked about on the Arrival episode about Sapir Whorf, about how language affects your perception of things? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a similar thing. If you only ever use male terms to think about God, then it's going to impact on your ability to how you see God. She also says... I would simply say that God is always bigger than our language and the Bible itself gives us permission to address God using many metaphors. Some of the metaphors are inevitably gendered, but any single one only ever gives us a glimpse of the breadth and majesty of God. Insisting on all male metaphors is not only seriously limiting our understanding of God, it repudiates biblical practice. And why do it? Because feminine concepts seem repugnant. Why? Of course we want to avoid any suggestion that we are worshipping a goddess, which is why I personally don't ever refer to God simply as she. But I do draw on the feminine images for God that are already given in strict scripture. Mm. So if you refer to God as a, a goddess, you're kind of making the same mistake. You're kind of limiting God to just one thing. 
having the flexibility of language helps you to yeah. have a better understanding of God. Like Max says in the book, like he says, like I imagined you with a big white beard and to look a bit like Gandalf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, and I think that's how most people perceive it. But well, it... And again, that, that comes back again to race as well, because Gandalf's a white man mm-hmm. with a big white beard. But there's no saying <laughs> he was it's, born in Israel. <laughs> it's funny you said about Gandalf, because in an interview with Nicky Gumbel, William Paul Young did actually refer say that most people think of God as looking like angry Gandalf. That, isn't that just Saruman? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically just Saruman, right? <laughs> Nicely done. There is a line in there where when she when he talks about how you, you're not being, you're not kind of what, you, what I expected. She says, after what you've been through, I didn't think you could handle a father right now. And this led me to this question. Does our relationship with our human fathers impact on our relationship with God? I guess in some ways it probably does. It like the behaviour of your father towards you when you were younger or maybe maybe not even you're younger, but just in your formative years, whenever that took place, Mm -hmm. um, can be um, can be quite um, it can craft a certain perspective yeah. like for example my, my my dad's a staunch atheist and he used to tell me that he you know he didn't used to say i don't believe in god he says god does not exist mm-hmm. and i came to my own sort of conclusion with that in the end like i, I sort of was inclined to believe my dad because he's my dad mm-hmm. you know you 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 want to lean on your, your your parents wisdom and your parents advice but eventually i sort of just looked at it myself and just went i i'm not saying that god doesn't exist i'm just saying that if he does exist, he's not for me. I lean more towards agnostic nowadays than atheism, which is a bit of a plot twist. So. <sighs> Don't tell me that, because now we're going to have to change the intro for every single episode. <laughs> I was like, That's all right. No, to be fair, I, I, what I believe in is that there are facts in life and things that you do socially that can bring about a feeling of God. I don't mm-hmm. believe it's necessarily God, but I would very much like to be proven otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is going to be one of those times when we take advantage of the fact that none of my family actually listen to this podcast. Mm. But I do not have a great... Well, I don't have a relationship with my dad, and I haven't had a relationship with my dad for uh, nearly two years now. And yeah. prior to that, I didn't have a great relationship with him anyway. I feel yeah. like... In many ways, I have never quite been good enough for him. My dad was very young when he had me. He was 23. And I think that in many ways, his idea of having a son would be that you had a clone. You had somebody who was like a a little mini-me. And my dad is a nuclear engineer, rugby-obsessed, status-obsessed baby boomer. And I am I'm not those things. And I think on some level, from, it, let's say, from about 11 onwards, I knew I felt the need that I had to try and impress my dad. Um, mm. And it never seemed to work. I think on some level, I felt like some of that might have translated into my relationship with God, that I felt I probably spent a large part of my teens, definitely my 20s, thinking Mm. that I wasn't good enough for God and that I needed to be better, that I I needed to do something or be something to make him love me. And it's not been until somewhere in my 30s that I've really come to the realisation that I am enough and that God, if this makes sense, God is is still working on me and yet he likes me just the way I am. You know, that that Bridget Jones line of I like you just the way you are. 
I think that's <laughs> the sort of thing that God would would yeah. say to me. So I think that's good. I, think that's I a tend good, to think a good stance to take. You know, I tend to think of God in male terms for the reason that Mac in the story can't think of God in male terms. I think I need a father figure, and mm. in the absence of an earthly one, a heavenly one will do. If that makes sense. I totally get it. Like, <coughs> I may as well. T- I'll take the. I'll take the deity then. A little bit, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, moving no, on. Before that. this gets too uh, too maudlin, we've talked in the past about God having a sense of humour. I think that uh, definitely shows in this film. <laughs> it really does. And I think, and like there's that there's that line after when God sort of changes from being Octavia Spencer to being Graham Greene. You know, this sort of like. Yeah. Uh, sort of middle-aged Native American man, where Max says to him, are you messing with me? And God responds, oh, always. (laughs) I firmly believe... Without without a hint of irony either. I firmly believe that that God sometimes just messes with you just because he can. Like, sometimes we as human beings will bite the inside of our own mouths. There is no evolutionary reason for doing that. If I had to attribute that to anything, I would say that as God going... If that was the case, I would say it was definitely some other power because I would never choose to bloody well do that. (laughs) Yeah, there's this line in the book and they lost it in the film and it's a real shame because I thought it was fantastic. It's when Jesus and Mackenzie are sitting out on the dock and the exchange goes something a little bit like this. Jesus? Yes, Mackenzie. I am surprised by one thing about you. Really? What? I guess I expected you to be more... uh, Well, humanly striking. Jesus chuckled. Humanly striking? You mean handsome? Now he was laughing. Well, I was trying to avoid that, but yes, somehow I thought you'd be the ideal man, you know, athletic and overwhelmingly good looking. It's my nose, isn't it? (laughs) Mac didn't know what to say. Jesus laughed. I am Jewish, you know. I do like that. I do like that. I, I, like, the fa- I like the sense of humour that Jesus has because it, 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 it really perfectly illustrates that he is also fully human as well as being God. Absolutely. And I love the fact that he's a little bit self-conscious about his nose. You know? He's just there like, is, is, it, is, it, is it my nose? Like I say, there's, there's lots of stuff going on there, but I just found that line hilarious, you know? Yeah, I like that a lot. Did you notice when he's settling down to, to sleep in the shack, he opens a drawer in in the, next to his bedside table, and do you see what's in there? A Gideon's Bible. A Gideon's Bible! <laughs> like, in real life, you'd find that in a hotel. Yeah. And it just sort of shows that he's on a visit right now. It, just, it was such a nice touch that... that... God Almighty, rather than having some sacred text or some tome or something like that, he would just grab a Gideon's Bible, arguably the most ubiquitous Bible there there is. <laughs> it was almost like saying, you don't need to unlock some sacred text or anything. I'm right here. I'm just in this normal book that you can find. Like if you, if you just need a, a quick refresher, you, yeah. can, you can read the Gideon's Bible. Yeah. Yeah, it's good that. He says, how come I feel more comfortable with you than with the others? And, and yeah. Jesus says, that's probably because I'm human. This comes back to something we talked about, that that Jesus was fully man and fully God. He is, he is both things that one really bakes my noodle <laughs> i just don't know how to explain that one yeah the crux of a, a lot of the this this thing was when papa says to mac the real underlying flaw in your life is you don't think i'm good mm. this film i don't think it necessarily answers that perfectly i think it does better than most people in answering that particular problem <laughs> But essentially what we're saying here is if God is real, then why does bad stuff happen? Being honest, I don't have answers that satisfy me fully yet. 
Mm. So I'm not. I'm going to keep them to myself until until yeah. I got something that. that... I, th- I think it comes back again to like the idea of balance for me. The question isn't really why does bad things happen because if people have free will, then that means that people can do bad things and people can do bad things to each other. In many ways, that's that's not the thing that bugs me. The thing that bugs me more is if God is real, why do natural disasters happen? Because yeah, I haven't come yeah. up with a decent answer for those yet. That's what I'm. Yeah, that's at. that's one of those things where I'm just like, that's a bit mean, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Did you notice anything interesting about when God is trying to get Mac to forgive his daughter's killer? I'm not sure. Well, there's an interesting thing where he's saying, you know, I want you to send him to hell. I want him to be punished. I want him to, and said, okay, well, do I then do, do I then punish his father who was the one that made him a monster in the first place? Yes, yeah, Mm. punish him. Okay. All right. Do I then punish the person who made, you know, it goes on, but the, the line that got me was when he says he's also my son the person that did this terrible horrible thing is my son as well and it's like so often when people do things that are completely absolutely disgustingly evil we want to throw them away we want to lock them up and throw away the key and pretend they don't exist to hell with them right but the uncomfortable thing about forgiveness is you have to forgive people that don't deserve it the thing is nobody deserves forgiveness forgiveness is a gift forgiveness isn't necessarily for the person that you are forgiving it's for yourself if you don't forgive all you're doing is swallowing poison and hoping the other person dies it's, damn it's it not Phil I hate it. it when you steal my lines that was exactly the thing I <laughs> was really? going to go with yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is a that is a well known phrase if I forgive somebody it is not a reflection on them it is a reflection on my need to be right with my father God and if God says I have to forgive people and if I am not forgiving yeah. them then I am sinning against God. And this is one of the things I really, really struggle with. It is something that God is working on me with. Everybody's got something. Some people are dealing with a porn addiction. Some people are dealing with being alcoholic. I am learning that there are some fights I don't need to get into. And I am still learning to forgive the people that, hurt me in various different contexts that's my journey that's the thing i'm i'm working on yeah and it le- it leads on to the next thing that, uh, that it talked about where mac is holding the the ladybird which is sort of almost represents the killer so he says i forgive you he opens his hand and the ladybird flies away and then he says i'm still angry and god says of course you are you might have to do it a thousand times before it gets any easier and this is something that i learned a long time ago but i feel like i need to i keep learning it is that forgiveness is a dynamic process. Hmm. In some cases, I forgive you, and then you're forgiven, and then we move on, boom. And then in other cases, you have to keep reminding yourself. It is something that it has to become reflexive. It's something you have to choose to do, and it's difficult. Like As we've, we've talked yeah. about in the past, that God has the power to literally forget a bad thing if somebody says they're sorry about it we don't have that i would give anything for that power sometimes yeah we're coming on to my last point here which is talking about accusations of heresy when i researched this film i found uh, no shortage of blogs and opinion pieces 
that were very quick to accuse it of heresy. Once celebrity pastor Mark Driscoll, formerly of Mars Hill Church, mm. got over 3,000 views of accusing it of four separate different types of history. Apparently, uh, he later revealed that he hadn't actually read the book when he reviewed it. Uh, Obviously. And, uh, <laughs> fun fact for you, this is a quote from Mark Driscoll. I recently heard two guys in their 20s passionately arguing over which superhero is the best of all. I took the liberty of asking them if they were single. They were. Who saw that coming? Is he just trying to get people to dislike him? <laughs> yeah, I can only assume that's what he's trying to do. Oh, oh, fun fact, Mark Driscoll also had to resign from his church due to accusations of bullying and financial mismanagement, and then the church fell apart. That, that... says a lot, doesn't it? So, here's the thing. Is the theology of the shack biblically sound? Who cares? <laughs> Clearly the people making these kind of claims are completely new to the realms of literary and cinematic criticism and are fundamentally ill-equipped to judge a piece of fiction. Saying the shack is heretical mm. is the same as saying the stars in Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night are not scientifically accurate. It is like complaining that Picasso's Woman Wept is not photoreal. It is obviously not meant to be. I think, in many ways, it comes from a bit of a jealousy. People yeah. who write stories are always going to get more people responding to it than people who write long, lengthy, dry essays about theology. It's just, it's just the way it is. It's art. Get over it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damn it, Phil. I've spent like a, I've written an entire paragraph on this issue, and you've pretty much summed it up in one <laughs> sentence. I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> Uh, Five words. It's art. Get over it. Brilliant. I love it. <laughs> That's, I, I, I quite like my distilled sort of explanation. So listen, just like in A Matter of Life and Death, Mac suffers a head injury, just like David Niven did in that film. So yes. if this massively offends you, just think of it as one man's hallucination. Good art and good stories can often inspire you to learn more about a subject. And if the shack does that, then it's done its job. Yeah. I mean, doing this podcast for me has, has made me... You know, interest, intrigued, I think is the term, uh, with, with you know, the way theology and sort of like, especially to do with Christianity and that works. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I, like I say, I don't necessarily believe in it, but at the same time, I just respect it because it means a lot to a lot of people. I, I can't I can't reconcile in my head just saying to people, oh, no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't believe in that because it's yeah. made up because I don't know for sure. <laughs> so. so does this story do a good job of showing a person healing from trauma? The honest answer is, I don't know. Phil, what do you think? I think you could probably take the um, the angle that it's, it's good therapy mm. for the character of Mac to yeah. be able to talk all of this out and to and to sort of work through his feelings and start to become you know more of a whole person again uh, i feel like we're sitting in on someone's therapy session and as with so many things uh, one person's therapy only needs to make sense to them it only needs to, to help them to, to yeah. heal and if it helps anybody else that's great the one thing i would say is that healing is almost always a long drawn out process i wish i could get it done in a weekend I've, um, <laughs> get it on the NHS or something yeah, like that. But all that said, <laughs> I love this film. When when he takes his daughter's body and it's put in the in the hand carved coffin and he's still bursting into tears, it got me so hard. Yeah. I think not wishing to sound like a cliche. I think watching this film on the other side of parenthood has a different effect on you. I kind of wish I'd seen it before I was a dad. Again, you know, it's. I think it's still just as enriching no matter what. So there we go. That is our finding the faith in the film for the shack. 
we Yay! have. Can you believe we have done? We have now done twenty-two episodes of God in Film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can, Giles. Yes, I can. It's yeah. like there's been times when I've just been like, I'm very tired now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, you just, you just, I, I enjoy angry. doing it. So, what's tiredness? <laughs> So uh, we have a review in from uh, Becca and uh, she says, absolutely love this podcast. I had my face in my hands laughing for some of the Jane Eyre episodes. (laughs) Really easy listening. I listen along while I'm working as well as casually thought provoking. On another note, Claire Goff has the most relaxing and kind voice. If I'm ever (laughs) feeling anxious, calms me down. Keep making the great content, guys. Love it. Thank you so much. That means everything. It really does. So the last thing I want to say is we love making this show Mm -hmm. and we know from our download figures that you love it too we just have one little request if you like this show please tell us about it as you know any creative types are desperate for some validation and we don't ask for money we don't run ads we just want to know what you think it makes our day also as the realities of being a parent kick in it would really help to justify to our wives why we spend so much time (laughs) on this project you know you have no idea (laughs) so if you could just leave us a review or tell anyone that you can any way that you can we would love that if we do another another series it might be something a little bit different from the the established god in film format we've got and if we do get to hear it it will be later on in this year in the meantime phil have you enjoyed making this series absolutely what started off as a way to stop myself from just going completely insane in lockdown has turned into something that's generated a, a real interest in my life and i think it's you know i've taken some lessons from this that make me a better person and a better father and a better husband as well that is awesome i did not intend for any of those things to happen so i'm gonna count I don't, those as a David, i'm not gonna lie to you i wasn't expecting that myself but even if you're not religious i think you can learn a lot from religion absolutely okay listeners thank you so much for listening thank you for being with us phil have you had a good time every single time mate me too listeners until next time bye Bye! Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh, and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Fact-checking and waffle editing by Christina Stanard-Good. Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one-star, in which case, hire a troupe of travelling players to perform the murder of Gonzago at court. But, insert a scene where two white dudes jabber on and only about films, and then keenly watch my reaction as I walk off and go and cry in my room.